0: The views expressed by your hosts, Austin and Landon, are not necessarily the views of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Let's lean in as Austin and Landon connect with this week's tycoons.
1: Good afternoon, tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. Landon Mance and myself, Austin Peterson, are happy to have with us on the program today somebody that Landon is really fangirling about. We call him, <laughs> his name is Mike McCallowitz, And so anybody who's into small business should know that name if you don't already. Uh, he's written several books, Profit First, Fix This Next, and uh, and on and on. And so we're excited to have him on the program today. M- Mike, thanks for being here. Austin, awesome. Thanks that kind. Welcome, Landon, my
2: fangirl. I had no idea. Uh, <laughs> it's nice to be here with you too, brother.
1: Yeah, well, I I, I knew he was a fan, but then last night's uh, LinkedIn post about today's episode actually solidified it for me. So I I definitely know he is 100% fangirling about having Mike on the show today. Cool. I hope my books have served Landon, you and and Austin, and uh,
2: hopefully the fandom is justified. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely.
1: I think it definitely is. and and actually, just to whet the appetites of uh, of the other listeners and and the reason that they should be listening to today's episode specifically is I actually had a LinkedIn message this morning from one of my clients and a past guest of the program, Josh Zolan, who recently connected with you during covid. and and uh, you know he I guess you guys have had a few exchanges, but he he wanted me to make sure that I thanked you again on air for Profit First, and, I, and I'm going to read what he actually wrote on LinkedIn. He says, I live and die by that book, saved my ass during COVID. <laughs> so I, I love it. Yeah, we, we connected, we were talking in an email.
2: I'm really lucky. I I, I get quite a few of those uh, emails now. And uh, you know, there was the people who prepared unknowingly that COVID was coming, but who prepared by doing some of the Profit First principles but the interesting thing is there's a lot of businesses now implementing it with just as great success. Even though we're in the crisis, you can still, I think any business, not actually using profit first, you can use any system, but I think businesses can still achieve profitability, even with this ongoing challenge, this new challenge.
1: Yeah. I mean, that, that that's really what it is, right? I mean, everybody wants to talk about this being the new normal and it may very well be, right? I mean, the fact that we're doing this via Zoom, maybe we wouldn't have done it uh, this way before, but plenty of podcasts do it this way across the nation anyway, and always have. But for me personally, in my business, and I know this is the same for Landon as well, that all of a sudden a Zoom meeting is acceptable. So much so that I actually had a Zoom meeting yesterday, not that this is old, but I had a Zoom meeting yesterday with a 70-year-old retired teacher that's a client of mine. And when my assistant reached out to schedule that meeting and we had traditionally met in person in my office i wondered what what her response was going to be i knew i didn't want her to come to the office i knew i didn't want to meet in her home just because she's in that age range where it's you know more dangerous for her for us to be meeting but she said yeah absolutely and she was you know, Johnny on the spot, right there on time uh, for our Zoom meeting, and she knew exactly what she was doing and was very comfortable in that in that uh, environment. So, I, I think that will change. Oh yeah, yeah, and I think uh, you know, customer
2: expectations are changing because of the virtualization of so many different things that we as businesses need to respond. You know, two thousand eight, they called it the Great Recession. I think twenty twenty is a great reinvention. It's the reinvention of what's expected of business and how we serve clients. You already hear stories of these small businesses that are, are booming for now. Maybe they won't. Maybe won't sustain, but are booming because they quickly responded, at least with um, stopgap measures, maybe Band-Aids. Restaurants in particular is interesting. I, I was talking with uh, this one company that works with restaurants. They do accounting work for them and so forth. They, say, uh, they said for them, uh, and they're in the Boston area, March, April, these businesses were tanking. But then they saw something interesting. in May, June, uh, there's starting to be a turn. in July, August now, there's a boom. And what these restaurants found, the the ones that adjusted was there's more profit in takeout food uh, than there is in in all the staff you need to facilitate at your restaurant. So some of these places, instead being a restaurant, they're really a cooking center. like they' They're just preparing meals and rolling them out. And they're doing it with one quarter of the staff they had to in the past. Yeah. So that restaurant now is very profitable. That's part of the great reinvention. I don't know if that's going to be the sustainable model. I think as a customer, I want to go back to restaurants and, and dine at some other place than my my kitchen. But I think there is going to be new expectations from customers that are going to cause permanent change too.
1: Yeah, I think there definitely will. And and you know, this past weekend happened to have been my 22nd wedding anniversary and my birthday. And so we, we did actually go out and sit down at a restaurant for, for the first time in a, in a while. And the experience was very different. It was very hard to actually get a table because these restaurants yeah. are operating at 50% capacity, right? Yeah. And so, the, you know, the first one we went to and I, I saw no line out the door and I thought, this will be fine. It was a two-hour wait. And so then we turned to open table and, and found we actually went to a different location of the same restaurant in a city away. And, and we were able to actually book a, a reservation, but only on the patio. And I, I need to remind you, Mike, I live in Phoenix. So it was 109 degrees, even as the sun went down sitting on the patio. So. But it's not humid. So what do you care? <laughs> <laughs> thankfully, right. yeah, thankfully there were misters, but unfortunately the wind was shifting yeah. directions. And so those misters weren't always on us. But, you know, what, what I saw was just a complete change in the way that, that this is is going to be going forward. We've used yes. DoorDash so much over the last several months at, at our house to have you know takeout come in. And, and you're right. These restaurants have, have adjusted, right? So they're giving up a percentage of their revenue to DoorDash for the delivery, but they're still finding that they can be more profitable by doing the delivery than in person because it's less staff, right? The, the people is what costs the most money. Now, not great for employees, right? And so we've got a. There will be another shift there where those employees will go to work and do something different. But these types of um, shifts, I guess that w- that we go through, or different, you know, issues that we go through in in the economy or whatever, really push entrepreneurs to figure out a way to get it done. You know, I've always said I'm not worried about the future because I know that entrepreneurs and innovators will lead us out of this you know, I I never rely on the government to lead us out of this. They put some stopgap measures in that were pretty darn important, but it's really the entrepreneurs, the visionaries and the innovators that are going to, that are going to lead us out of this. Can I, can I
2: second that and third that and fourth? I mean, that is <laughs> so spot on in my opinion. It's interesting. So I studied every recession now back to 1929, the great depression to see what the common trend was. And, um, Actually, Ray Dalio uh, studied this too and has a great document that's called The Debt Crisis. And it it explains from Wall Street's perspective, every crisis. Here's a common thing. There's a trigger every time. Something that causes a destabilized economy to start spinning out. So the Great Depression was that we moved to a gold standard internationally, Wall Street collapsed. There was already a destabilized economy. And we go into this Great Depression. Fast forward to modern times, like in the 70s, OPEC oil crisis uh, triggers a recession. Uh, t- t- 2000 was the dot com bubble uh, or dot com burst, uh, but it was also the terrorist attacks and that destabilized already unstable economy bubbling below the surface. 2008 was the housing collapse. In 2020, of course, is COVID. What's interesting to me was every economy was turned by small enterprise, by micro enterprise, by small business, not by the juggernauts, the established players. Some of them kind of kind of balled through it, but they didn't. They weren't the innovators. So, Amazon and Airbnb and Google, which all the way out of the way, came out of recessions right. when they started, will not be the innovators that save the economy to go around. It's going to be some, someone we haven't heard of, or many people we haven't heard of right now, that are working diligently on a new provision, a new way to be a service, to, to reinvent the industry. And they're going to come out of nowhere. And I don't know if it's two years from now we hear their name or five years, but they're coming. And they're going to be the new juggernauts of the next generation because they navigated this as of recession. I would argue, if, if we saw this as an ocean wave and there's a tsunami wave rolling through, Amazon and Google, those folks, they're on tanker ships. You know, they they got to be lucky to navigate over this and take the role, but they're not going to be able to surf that thing. The small business, we're on jet skis and we can spin quick and, and catch the wave and really launch off this.
1: Yeah, and I think that's actually even a better explanation of the one that Stephen Covey uses, where he talks about the trim tab, right, and trying to turn the big ocean liner and and how that actually helps turn that big ocean liner. It, The difference is a jet ski is always going to turn better than an ocean liner, even with, you know, the small adjustments that you're going to make using the trim tab and so forth. And so, it, you know, it, I agree with you 100%. We did have a, a guest on a few weeks ago, Brenda Schmidt with Coplex here in Phoenix, who, they're actually starting to launch so they've they've been an incubator here locally in Phoenix they're pretty well known um, but they're starting to actually work with different divisions at large organizations to help them be better at innovating because it, it would be helpful sometimes to have a larger organization that can be more innovative but you know just like we tell our clients all the time the, the big companies are going to figure it out they're going to be fine and those are the companies that we invest in in the stock market. But who's really taken the brunt of this is the small businesses. They will ri- they will rise and figure it out with us, but they've really taken the brunt of this. The bigger companies are, are riding it out and they'll be fine. I agree. Yeah. yeah. So the I, I big wanna... companies
3: are still taking their, the big executives are still taking their multi-hundred thousand, multi-million dollar salaries while the small business owners are foregoing their salaries altogether to ensure that their businesses, you know, survive, uh, these times.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It, it's classic. Um, and you no, know, I, I don't begrudge the executive that, that makes all the money. If the business is doing it in an ethical way, congratulations to her or him being the head honcho. They are providing jobs for hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people. Um, if you're taking it in an ethical way, that's when I take, uh, Take exception to that. The small business, though, experiences shift in hyper hyperspeed. So, you know, when March fifteenth or wherever the trigger day was, I think it was around March fifteenth, the news comes out. You know, this is a pandemic now, and law sets in where you can't have a storefront uh, or a gathering place. The little businesses, you know, took the the punch to the chin. In our little town here, it's called Buton, where we're about twenty five miles west of New York City. Population is five thousand. We have a main street. It's called Main Street. It's the one street where there's commerce in this town, predominantly. I think there's fifty stores, and uh, I think five or six of them were shuttered within weeks because they were in this check to check survival mode. Like you know, if they were going to pay rent tomorrow, they better make some serious sales today, and that's the mode they were in. the The businesses that are sustaining are the ones that really considered profitability. We're, we're baking into their business and we're storing up a cash reserve to some degree to navigate the unexpected. I, I think what I like about big business is generally they have extraordinary fiscal discipline. You know, Jeff Bezos, Bezos, however you pronounce it, um, you know, started out of his garage, that company, Amazon's now this you know, mega corporation, but, or I should say, and one of the differences is when he was tiny if you wanted to forego salary, something it was just him. It doesn't matter. But as you grow and you have thousands or hundred thousand plus employees, you know you can't miss payroll. It's like, hey, we can't cover it this week. Are we cool with this? Fiscal discipline is a key element. And what's fascinating of these big companies I studied is their focus on sustained profitability and sharing with the shareholders. So these companies they do focus on profit. It's a reward to the people who invest in the business, and we all. That choose to invest have the right to take equity in these businesses and share in the distribution. I think there's a great lesson there for us small business owners: is is profit is critical. So, regardless, if we want to scale to be the next Amazon or mega corporation, or you just want to be the best definition of what you want your business to be. Profitability is at the essence of it, and you have a responsibility, I would argue, as you achieve profitability and grow your profits to distribute it to the shareholders. That's what the big corporations do. That's the golden rule, in fact, of a healthy company is to keep the risk takers engaged. And as a small business owner, in many cases, we own, you know, 50% of your partner or more, 100%. We got to reward ourselves for taking that risk. At the end of the day, our job as entrepreneurs is to be providers of jobs. And I hope if anyone's listening in uh, with a piece of paper in front of you, underline, write that one down underline it. The job of an entrepreneur is to provide jobs. You know, we take risks with a vision that we set. We then organize resources to make that vision a reality, technological vendors to make that reality. The the mistake small business owners make is say, well, I got to carry the business on my back. I got to work harder. I got to grind and hustle to make this work. That's not what it's about. It's about creating jobs to make that vision a reality. And if you are doing the work as an entrepreneur yourself, You're stealing jobs. With this pandemic, was it 40 million people at one point were unemployed? 40 million people. There's a lot of good people, great people that are looking for jobs. These are people that don't want to be entrepreneurs. Only 7% of the U.S. population um, have started businesses. 93% never will. So 93% of these people, uh, that population, 40 million of them, unemployed, looking for jobs, highly talented, and we, the entrepreneurs, are the provider of jobs. That's what we need to do. We need to build profitable organizations so that we can provide these jobs for the, the people that want to do it. And that also begets the fact that we got to remove ourselves from doing the work. It, there's a big mind shift because particularly in there's panic and stress of this pandemic, people are like, I got I to gotta do more work and I got to hold it myself closer to the vest and, and I, I got to tighten things up. And, and I'm not saying play loose here. I'm just saying extract yourself out of the business, get it running on automatic get the people that want to do the work, doing the work, and you get on to doing what I believe you want to do, which is setting vision, direction, and purpose for the business.
1: Yeah, 100%. I, I, and, I and I believe that most of the entrepreneurs out there do believe that way. They they get into business because one, they they don't like or can't handle working for somebody else, right? But then they, they want to build something and they do want to provide jobs. And I think a lot of times the the media portrays business owners as greedy people who are just in it for themselves. But the reality is most people really enjoy building a business and employing others and contributing to the economy in that way.
2: Yeah, it's funny. So, you know, I write Profit First, talk about a title that's controversial. My gosh, the number of people are like, this guy's a greed monger. Oh, he cares about money. <laughs> There's actually a a very famous person uh, in in the financial space who on public radio, someone called in, said, I'm reading this book, Profit First. He stopped the show and said, Profit First? He goes, I'm about people first. That's a greed monger. And not his exact words. I'm paraphrasing. But what was fascinating is, um, I would argue it is our responsibility to be profitable. If you want to be a contributor to society, you must be profitable. This is the concept of putting your oxygen mask on fast first, so you can breathe and have air, so you can save other people. Because if you die, if your business dies, then you can't be of service. In this pandemic of those businesses that went out of business, one business made a decree. They said uh, our community needs us more than ever now. I agree. They then said we're going to uh, be uh, we're going to contribute to our community actively and give until it hurts. Not their exact words, but that's what they basically said. Well, they gave it till it hurt. Uh, they gave for about two weeks and they had a shutter of the doors. They went out of business. And some people were heralding them and saying, wow, it was wonderful what they did. And uh, I'm saying shame on them. That, that's like martyrdom. What they've done is they contributed to our community for two weeks when they could have contributed for two years or two decades. They, their responsibility is to give while sustaining the business. Shame on them because now they're not here anymore. And I think that's a lesson for all of us is... We must be profitable. We have a responsibility to be profitable. In fact, our clients and customers are starving for us to be profitable. They're begging for us to be profitable. They never use those words. No customer's like, hey, can you double the price on me? Can you charge me a little bit more? <laughs> of course not. But what our customers do say is, when you're caring for me, when you're focused on me, I want to make sure I'm your number one client in that moment. I want to be catered to. I don't, I don't want you bringing food to my table and you're so worried about uh, bringing in more money that you're cutting corners, cheaper food, expired food. Uh, that you're throwing the plate down so you can run and hopefully get another customer outside? No, we want to be catered to. Well, the only way we as vendors can care for our customers is by not worrying about money. Because you are in that check-to-check survival mode, it's all about desperation and getting money, and you can't care for your existing customer. So our clients want us to be profitable. Because profitability brings about focus, concentration, and ab- absolute contribution to that customer and future customers. So be profitable. You know, Focusing on that. This pandemic, this shift, is it's, it's hard. There's no question about it. But don't give away the farm here and go out of business. Find a way to serve your customers in a new way that's very profitable. I'm impressed by those restaurants that are doing the takeout. There's one in our community that really amplified it. They were doing takeout and said, hey, what if we team up with a food truck that can deliver meals hot to your neighborhood? So what they do is they will do blast voice messages to a community and say, Hey, listen, we're coming into the north part of Buton, uh between 5 and 5.15. Meals are coming in. Uh, if you want one, just call us back. We have all the truck uh, stocked with different meals, or you can even walk out to the cul-de-sac and we'll drop it off to you that way. The, this restaurant is a cooking center. I mean, they're, they're turning out meal after meal after meal because they've modified to the new demand from customers. And... I don't know their numbers, but apparently they're doing it very profitably, which means they're gonna be around uh to continue to do this. And that impresses me.
1: I agree with you a hundred percent. So let, let's let's stop right there, take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors, and then you know, when we come back we'll let the guy that doesn't use or that does use Just For Men get a few questions in or he may he may scratch my eyes out.
3: At Paylocity, we deliver more than our awesome product suite with
1: crazy good reviews. We prioritize your success by covering you with a deep support system to back up our easy-to-use, innovative HR solutions. Everything we do is designed to support you in reaching your goals.
2: Together, we tackle your day-to-day work so that you can spend more time building the
1: culture you and your employees crave. For professionals who crave true partnership, Paylocity is the HR and payroll company that frees you from the tasks of today, so together we can spend more time focused on the promise of tomorrow. Let's go forward together.
3: Welcome back, tycoons. We are here with uh, Mike uh author of several incredible
2: business books. Um, Mike, thanks again for being with us. Yeah, this is is fun so far. Let's turn up the heat. Let's show Austin what Just for Men can do.
1: (laughs) Give you all the confidence you need. I like it. He jumped right on board. The Just for Men (laughs) and the uh, rug on top of his head, and we're in good shape.
3: So, Mike, as much as I I love talking about what's going on in the present and and, and what you are, are focused on moving forward, I apologize I want to take a little step back and just let you let you spend a couple minutes and talk to us um, set the foundation for us. Tell us about your backstory. how did you you know get to where you are today so that we can kind of we can get to know Mike a little bit more as, as a person and as, as a business guy
2: sure sure so uh, I've been an entrepreneur my entire adult life ever since I graduated college um, i've effectively owned a business I, I had some early wins in the traditional sense. I mean, I started a couple of tech businesses, service tech companies, uh, was able to sell them. One was a private equity deal and one was an exit to a Fortune 500. By my early 30s, became a self-made millionaire doing this. I don't think that's the interesting part of my story. I think what happened next is I decided to become an angel investor because I knew it all. And that was the first start of my downfall was this overwhelming arrogance. Like, oh my God, I can sell businesses. I can build them. I can pump and dump. Clearly, I'm a genius. And um, so this, this arrogance coupled with ignorance too, I really didn't understand business, uh, had had set in. And I became an angel investor. I, I sucked at it. I started 10 companies all in different verticals and spaces. None of them complemented each other. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just you know, making it rain money. <laughs> it took me 2 years. And through that, plus you know the big spend like i had to get the big ticket stuff the big house in new jersey we we got a place out in hawaii to go on sabbatical on a private island called lanai uh, larry ellison now owns that of oracle and we you know all these things and um burned through money so fast fast forward 2 years later i get a call from my accountant and he says mike i never expect to say this to you but it is my recommendation that you immediately declare, declare bankruptcy or Uh, he goes, you have to liquidate everything and you got to ratchet back a thousand percent. I chose option two. Uh, we lost our house 30 days later, lost our possessions, cars, everything was gone. Everything. Uh, The only thing we had left was we ended up buying a rusty, a rusty Dodge Durango, this blue monster. And that was the family vehicle, uh, that we didn't have a house anymore. In fact, neighbors, uh, gave us a house effectively. They were going on a trip to Europe and they, they knew our circumstances and just said, Hey, listen, we we're looking for house sitters. Do you want a house for a year? Saved us. I had to go home to my family in that moment when that, my my accountant called me and, and tell my family it's all gone. And, uh, I was, it wasn't a proud moment by any stretch of imagination. I was crying. I was sobbing. I was so ashamed because i have been lying by omission. And, uh, the specific moment I remember was my daughter. I had three children. My daughter was there. She was nine years old at the time, and I told her, "I said I can't afford to pay for your horseback riding lessons anymore." It was like twenty dollars a session, group session. As she hears this and she sees her father crying, she she just starts crying herself and she she runs out of the room. And I thought she was running away. And honestly, uh, when I share this story, I've shared it before too. I I don't seek anyone's empathy or sympathy for this. This is I thrust this upon myself. I share because I think it's something that we've all been through, this financial challenge or it could be some other trauma, but there's these moments that the world punches us in the face, figuratively or sometimes literally. And and the solution feels like running away. And that was so what she was doing by running out of the room. I respected that. Um, I was ashamed that she was so scared of me to run away, but I also got, because that's what I wanted to do. But she wasn't running away. She ran to her bedroom to grab her piggy bank and she ran back to me, my wife and my other children were there. And she looks up at the table, she puts it there and she goes, daddy, daddy. She goes, I know you can't provide for us anymore. She goes, but I'll step up and do it. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> I said, you know, I've told this story a thousand times, I still can't get over. It. It's such a visceral feeling. My final breath on our, on our planet is going to be that memory. I know it. Well, that triggered me to fix this. And just to put a little cap on the story, it's night like, like the next morning I woke up and said, okay, now I'm gonna be an author who writes business books to fix all the challenges of entrepreneurship. Uh, the next morning I woke up and I hit uh, the bottle, uh, really got into tequila and whiskey and cheap beer for a couple of years and uh, use that to medicate through the self-hatred I had. Um, but also during that period, there was that seed that was planted where I I questioned everything I knew about entrepreneurship. So I started writing about it. That inspired me to become an author, to challenge every preconceived notion I had. When I wrote my first book, it was called The Toy Paper Entrepreneurs, this kind of irreverent, sophomoric attack, assault on the traditional beliefs of entrepreneurship. Um it, it got a little bit of a cult following. And I found out that, oh my gosh, I'm not the only person experiencing this stuff. There's a lot of people experiencing it. That moment with my daughter, that that triggered a need for profit first a full way for business to be permanently profitable uh, and, and to manage our profit, not by becoming, becoming masterful at accounting, but by just logging into our bank account. Like, how can we do that? And it triggered clockwork on business efficiency, all the work I've done. So today, uh, I'm now a business author for 12 years, full-time. And I intend to for the rest of my life. My, my mission is to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. There's, there's this belief when we become an entrepreneur of what we're going to achieve. And the world sees us as in the reality, the struggle. You know, We're going to be rich and uh, we're going to have all the time in the world. We have, no, But the reality is we have no money and no time. That gap is what I call entrepreneurial poverty. And I'm devoted to closing that. I, I think entrepreneurs should be wildly successful. We should have all the freedom in the world because that allows us to be the greatest contributors and in this economy to turn the economy around.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So that's a perfect... Point for us to 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 dovetail into our next kind of discussion point with you, which is, you know, your mission is to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. So, how are you how are you doing that right now in these times? You know, what are you seeing as the biggest challenges that businesses are facing? You know, right now.
2: Well, probably confidence, which wasn't what I thought I was said pre-COVID. So, I sent out a survey. Not even really a survey, but just an email asking people to respond to me, and like about a thousand to two thousand people somewhere that wrote back. And I, I asked, "What's the challenge you're facing with this COVID pandemic, and how's it's affecting your business?" And I thought, like, you know, I need a new way to market, and need to reinvent my my business. A lot of the feedback was simply this: confidence. Saying, you know, my confidence is rocked. I don't know if I can do this. I don't have a belief in myself. I, I'm not a self help guru guy. Like I, I love that content. I love consuming self help. I don't know how to teach that stuff. But I started investigating that. I found that confidence comes from a few areas. One is simplifying the complex. You know, When it comes to back to profit first, for example, that whole system was about removing the complexity of accounting, get to the core essence of what makes a business profitable and make it really simple to execute on. It's worked for, I'm very happy to report, lots of companies. But there was something even even more specific to the individual entrepreneur saying, I don't know if I can do this anymore. It was this mindset. So I started studying confidence. I, uh, I started putting out videos. I, I have a website. I got recessionresponse.com, how to respond to recession. And a lot of it's been around confidence building. I'll give you an insight though that's fascinating. Is My assumption going into this research was, oh, there's confident people and there's unconfident or not confident people. And how do you make someone that's not confident, confident? Like That was my approach. Well, my research indicated that that's actually, I had that incorrect. Everyone's confident. Everyone actually has extreme confidence. It's the application of that confidence. The question is, where are we applying that extreme confidence now? For one example, the, the drinking of water out of a glass. I get to find a person that's not extremely confident at that. The funny thing is, if you rewind to your childhood, there was a time you couldn't drink water out of a glass. Like, you know, you, your mom gave you a sippy cup, you're dropping it, you spill it on your shorts, you get that first cup, it's all over your face. How, how do we achieve that confidence when in the beginning we couldn't do it? Well, there's a, I call it the confidence recipe, there's a pattern um, with some general kind of consistency among all people, but other, but people have their own little flavors and elements of their own confidence recipe. But there's elements that come about, usually the ability to laugh at yourself, trying small. Repeating again pretty quickly. So when you, you drink water and you, you choke on, and you cough it out. As a little child, you actually try drinking water right again, right away again. Uh, you laugh and you giggle about it. You do other things. I mean, there's just some examples. So then, knowing our confidence recipe, like what what do we do as a process to achieve confidence in something as simple as that? How do we apply it to something where we need to achieve confidence in sales? Well, you start small. You laugh at the failures. You get right back on that horse the second you fall. Those elements play out again, and sure enough, if we apply the, that recipe to any element of our life where we're not having confidence right now, we'll start to achieve confidence.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's an underutilized word in business, or it's not focused on enough. I guess is the, is a better way to say that. You know, it's funny even in in our business, Landon and I will use a phrase something to the effect of. You know, our clients hire us because we find or they find that that, that the plan that we put together for them gives them greater confidence and clarity as to where they're going in their financial life. And we use those words because they're very strong words that convey something to people. And they realize, man, if I if I really were confident in my finances or in, in this situation, if I were confident in the plan that I put together for building this business or taking this business from today until 2025, how much better am I going to feel about getting up and doing it every single day? Right. It, it's it's a super important part of everybody's life in many aspects of their lives, including business.
2: I was interviewing this up-and-coming author, his
1: name is Michael Roderick, just this morning.
2: And he used a really cool analogy. He said, uh, a Swiss Army knife, he goes, it probably has you know 20 or 40 pieces, depends on the model you get. But everyone knows it has a blade. Like every Swiss Army knife has a blade, but it's hard to name the 50 other parts. He goes, when it comes to business, he goes, a lot of businesses, our competition is notorious for this, is listing all of the pieces. And maybe... Maybe we're notorious for this too. Oh, we have the toothpick, we got the finger file, we got the screw, we got the Phillips and the flat, you know, blah, 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 blah. just say you got the blade. Bring it down to the essence of what your core function is and say, yes, we got a lot of other tools if it's necessary, but man, we can cut through anything. That's the clarity that we need to bring to uh when we communicate about our businesses. So there's an internal confidence, but what I think Austin, you were just sharing is this how we exude an external confidence, and it's through really simplified, poignant features as opposed to this diatribe list of I got this and that and this and that.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. I was in a in a group meeting this morning for the Vistage group that I'm part of. You know, we talked about how, or I actually said that somebody was talking about how they hadn't written a business plan for something that they, a different vertical that they want to go into for their business, right? And he said, I, it's just not me. I don't do that. And 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 I kind of pushed back a little bit and said, you know, I, I, I'm not asking you to write a book. A business plan, in my opinion, should be one page long. One page, you can look at it, you can review it often, you can update it. It's easy to kind of follow and 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 tweak as time goes on but laying out the things that you're not thinking about specifically on one page to make sure that you're hitting things and making sure that you avoid blind spots, I think is, is critical. And that right there is probably enough in most situations to provide you the confidence that you need to go out and execute it.
2: Yeah, I a hundred percent agree with that. It's almost like a vision board, right? It's just have clarity of the direction you're heading. I love that. What do you think fangirl?
3: <laughs> you know what's funny is that I actually heard that term for the first time about about a year ago I invited a buddy of mine to go to a concert and his wife was poking fun at him and goes, you know, he's he's like their biggest fangirl and I just about fell over laughing. I had never heard that before and I it actually I did consider using that exact term during this interview just to get a laugh, but I figured that I would, uh, refrain. So thank you for, um, thank you for bringing that to, to the surface. <laughs> That's <laughs> funny. What was the band? Uh, Rev- Revolution.
2: Okay. Nice. That's fangirl worthy.
3: Yeah. My brother went to high school with the keyboardist, So they're, uh, oh, yeah, friends. Yeah. 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 You
2: know, what's funny is, um, when there's a commonality, and this is actually a, a, a technique for selling, when there's a commonality between uh, people, there's a greater affinity. I, I was traveling through Russia as an example, and um, if, if you have ever been to Russia, uh, no, no surprise here—people speak Russian, um, and not many people speak English unless you're speaking at a conference, and some of those folks will. So you know, sitting in a cafe or something, can't understand a word that's happening there. You're just sitting there. I heard one guy speaking English. He was from a border. Town here, it's called Persephone. It's one town over from the town I'm in, Buton. By chance, well, all of a sudden, there's this massive affinity. I'm like, dude, that's so amazing! You're from Persephone. Oh my god! We, and we, you know, talk for hours. The funny thing is, if I ran into that guy on the road uh, and he's from Persephone, I'm from Booton Here, they're like, oh, dude, you know, like I wouldn't even talk to the guy. <laughs> so the context is in a scenario where we can see commonality in an uncommon kind of arena. Instant affinity comes. Um, so I, in sales, it's interesting when you're selling something to someone. If you can find that commonality, you're in a very strange arena. You're trying to propose something uh, they, they want to buy, but they don't know if you're trying to swindle them right there. It's, a, it's very. But it, if there's a link, saying, "Oh my gosh, we went to the same school. Um, oh my gosh, we 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 both speak the same second language, or whatever it is." This affinity, I think, instantly comes about, and that's a, that's advantageous to both of you. It's it's a link of trust, you know.
3: Yeah. I want to talk to you about what you call the survival trap. So excited to uh, hear you expound upon that. But if we can, Mike, uh, let's just take a quick break and uh, hear from another one of our uh, gracious sponsors. You got it.
0: Whether you're an established local company or a brand new startup, you can count on GBS to be part of your family. We're not just any benefits consulting firm, we're GBS. We have nearly 30 years of experience in group benefits, a strong sense of purpose, and it shows. GBS, believe in something better. GBSbenefits.com.
3: Welcome back, Tycoons. We are here with Mike Uh Mike, talk to us, please, sir, about the survival trap.
2: Yeah. So this is something I've really investigated uh, intensely in Fix This Next. That's my newest book. I, I explored it in my other books too. It is the common modus operandi for businesses. And if you feel you're a firefighter in your business, you, you're living the a survival trap. What I mean is you come into work, and maybe you have a plan or intentions for the day, but it seems the stream of email questions and the line Questions outside the door, or the messages on your phone, actually take over, and it becomes this constant putting out fires. What's interesting is um, most businesses that I've studied and, and I experienced myself as I was growing my businesses were businesses based upon this op- this this mode of operation. In your mind, you can draw this out. The survival trap we do is you draw the letter A It stands for the where we are right now. Point A, put a circle around it in the middle of a piece of paper or just in the middle of your mind, put the letter A and put a circle around it. And what A represents is where we are right now, what crisis or challenge we're facing or opportunity facing in our business. A could also stand for the apparent, right? There are all these apparent issues we could address. Then as a second step, you can draw, I suggest like three arrows starting at A and going in a direction away from A for a short distance, an inch or two. And what those arrows represent are choices we can make. So we can go up, we can go to the right, we can go left, whatever it is, down. But we can go in a multitude of directions. And what happens is if we take or make any of those choices, we escape A. So we get relief. Now, as the third and final step, I tell people, draw the letter B in the top left corner of that piece of paper and put a circle around it. What B represents is what your business actually needs from you. At any given point, there can only be one most important thing to improve your business. So B represents the most vital need your business has. And then the question, especially if you're following along on paper, is how many of your arrows point toward B? And the answer for most people, if you did this on paper, is none of the arrows, maybe one. uh, If you didn't or had the same thing. Then the question of course is why don't all the arrows point toward B? Because if we're at A and the most vital need of our business is B, shouldn't every effort go in that direction? And the answer why that didn't happen is very obvious. Because we didn't know where the FB was going to be, right? (laughs) If you don't know where B is going to be, how can you draw arrows toward it? And that's the challenge of business. Most businesses operate escaping the now, the crisis. What happens is they move from now to now to now. They escape A by going in one direction, they end up in a new A, meaning a new consideration, new crisis. They escape that by going in some direction, new crisis. And they're in this circuitous pattern of being stuck in the now. So what we need to do is know what our business needs from us next. The survival trap is getting stuck here. There is one scenario that happens by chance it's called happenstance, but it's actually the most dangerous scenario. And sometimes in this little demonstration when people draw on a piece of paper, they'll draw the letter A and one of the arrows by chance will point toward B. They didn't know where B was going to be, but one of the arrows pointed that way. Well, how it manifests in business is sometimes, you know, Business is kind of struggling along. We're putting out fires, kind of grinding through. But then one day everything clicks. Money's flowing in. Clients are happy. Employees are high fiving you. You leave at four thirty, and everything's (laughs) perfect. And then the next day we return back to work, and it's a total disaster again. (laughs) And the question is, why was it working that one day, and everything fell apart? That is the manifestation of that happenstance toward B. Sometimes our actions do align with what our business needs and that fluidity comes about. Things start clicking. But since we didn't know where B is, we ended up in a new A, a new now. The next morning, we start putting out fires again and we keep going in a circuitous pattern. What we need to do to escape the survival trap is get absolute clarity on what our business needs from us. I outline the strategy and fix this next. But the essence of it is that there is a hierarchy of needs specific to our business. Kind of like there's a hierarchy of needs we have for our human survival. Maslow documented this in the Maslow hierarchy of needs. Talks about physiological needs, the needs to breathe air, eat food, drink water, before we can satisfy higher level needs, safety from harm. The highest level need, by the way, being self-actualization. And Maslow argued at any given time, if a base level needs not satisfied, we'd revert to that. And it works seamlessly for all of humanity because we are neurologically wired into ourselves. Our sight, hearing, sound taste, all those things, the senses feed into our brain. And gives us a gut sensation. of, oh, I'm hungry. I better eat. Oh, I'm thirsty. Oh, I think I'm, I'm not safe here. I better turn around and leave. But in our business, we're not neurologically wired in. So our gut actually fails us in our business in many cases. We like to say, I trust my gut. I feel I need more Facebook ads. Now, everyone's on Instagram now. We got to hop over there. Oh, no, no, TikTok. TikTok's the place to be. <laughs> but we don't back it. With the sensory inputs for a business, which is empirical data, the accounting, the sales metrics, some businesses don't even track that stuff. It's all gut instinct. And we get frustrated why our business seems year in, year out, never to really move forward. So what we need to do is we need to collect data. Uh, and it's not, it doesn't have to be overwhelming, just simple inputs so that we can get the, hearing, the seeing and the hearing for our business in place and measure that. The second thing is we got to work within the hierarchy of a business needs. So foundationally, every business needs to create cash through sales. It needs to extract that cash through profit extraction for sustainability. We talked about that extensively already. It needs to bring about efficiency and order. So there's no dependency on the owner or anyone, uh, any individual person in the company. So it can keep going. In in order to achieve the highest levels of business needs, which are having impact on community, ultimately achieving legacy, having a business uh, be in a position of permanence so it can live on generationally. And I don't mean like generationally in a family. I mean, that can serve generations of customers. Yeah. So that's the survival
1: trap. Survival trap, in in my mind, is really just another definition of entrepreneurial poverty, right? I mean, exactly. being stuck in there is going to put you in that entrepreneurial poverty forever. There There was a study conducted by U.S. Bank
2: two years ago, and they refreshed the study. There is now 30 million small businesses in the U.S., A small business as defined by the SBA is a company that does $25 million in annual revenue or less. Now, I don't know if that's you guys. That's absolutely my business. It's probably a lot of the people listening right now. We are small business owners. U.S. banks research identified that 83% of us are struggling check by check. That's, if I do the math real quick, was that 24, 25 million businesses are on the verge of going out of business if we don't get in significant sales this week. You know, if, if money doesn't come in now, we're not covering next month's payroll. We're not covering next month's rent. And we're definitely not paying ourselves. Yep. There's this constant survival. And uh, that's the survival trap. is just getting by and never escaping. We need to be very clear on what business needs from us and nail that. And I'm not saying to the exclusion of everything else. If there's plates spinning, you have to keep those spinning. The thing is, we just don't want to keep jumping around to the next apparent issue. We want to focus on the impactful. There was actually, there's a saying that's popular in the entrepreneurial community saying that entrepreneurs are uh, often focused on the urgent over the important. I want to tweak that. I I don't take that 100%. I don't believe we focus on the urgent. I believe we focus on the apparent. Meaning the next thing that presents itself to me is the thing that I may choose to prioritize. I'm the one who gives something urgency. There's a, right now, all three of us, we could just hop an email. We could probably find 50 things that we need to do. We're the ones who say, I need to do it right now. Therefore, we give it urgency. So we give urgency to the apparent, and we never seek out the impactful. What is that the big bottleneck in our business that needs our reserve energy? What's the one project we got to see through while oh, we spin the other plates? But what's the one big project we need to see through to its entirety? It's, it is a one-thing-at-a-time mentality that we have to have in really moving our business forward in, in big leaps and bounds. I think
3: that speaks directly to your book. Fix this next, and so my my follow up to that statement is how how to we as entrepreneurs as business owners how do we figure out what that thing is in our business that we need to fix next? How do we figure that out?
2: Yeah, so you, we use what I call the business heart give needs there and I, I touched on the very loosely, I touched on it. It is documented fully, of course, in the book. There, there's five levels. Foundationally, every business needs sales, creation of cash. Then it needs profit. It's always in this order. I, I studied, by the way, the DNA of every business from macro enterprise, like the Amazon's world, to micro shops, like you know a, a hot dog stand and everything in between. Foundationally, we need sales to bring money in. Then we need profit to extract money and reserve money for stability and sustainability. It also satisfies... One of the primary reasons why people start a business is for financial freedom, not to worry about bills. That can only come around of profitability. The next level then is order. Order is the creation of organizational efficiency. It's where the business is not dependent on any individual, particularly the owner themselves. Like, if I'll tell you someone that's really organized well. It's McDonald's. During pre-COVID, I traveled a lot for speaking engagements. And admittedly, I would go to a McDonald's every so often, maybe once or twice. <laughs> a day. Uh, I go pretty often. And when I go there, I started asking uh, the cashier, I said, Hey, can I speak with the owner? Not because I had a problem. I just want to learn how they run these McDonald's so efficiently. Not in one instance. I think I did it 50 times. Not in one instance was the owner ever there. The owner's not flipping the burgers or cooking the fries. And is not in that glorified closet that they call the manager's office. There's not there. The owner of a business, our job is to have a vision of what we want this business to be and seek out to grow or expand the opportunity if we so desire. The McDonald's owner is looking for other McDonald's franchise locations. That's likely what they're doing. Yep. That's order. The next level is impact. Impact is where we're of service to our community. The Highest level is legacy. And just to answer your question, Landon, to find where we need to be, you always start at the base and say, do I have adequate sales? It's actually a little bit more than that. And I actually, in the book, there's an online uh, eval I'm sorry. In the book, there's an evaluation. Also online, there's an eval if people want to check it out. It's free. You can evaluate your business. But you say do adequate sales. Once that's adequately serviced, then we focus on profit and say, are we extracting profit? If not, we have a profit issue. We have focus on that. Once profit's adequate, is it supporting the ability to create more efficiency? If if we don't have more efficiency being built, it's there. So you start at the base of this hierarchy, work your way up until you hit a road stop. You fix that. And you start at the base again, evaluate and see where the next stop is,
1: and fix that. We're getting close to running out of time, but i I, th- I would guess, and you can tell us if if we're correct on this or not. But I would guess that most entrepreneurs get stuck in is the profit adequate, right? Because mm-hmm. I have conversations with my clients about it all the time, and like you just yeah. said, even companies that do twenty five million up to twenty five million in revenue, many of them have less than a month or two months of payroll in reserve okay. to cover. Yeah a slowdown, right? And dangerous. it's it's dangerous. And I and I think that it's it's missed so often as an entrepreneur or a business owner having those reserves in place so that you can weather these storms and not only weather these storms but take advantage of these storms and be able to potentially double down on marketing for example or go out there and pick up market share because your competitor down the street didn't prepare for this rainy day and they're not able to to capitalize on this? The gut response of many entrepreneurs when they're in uh, a
2: financial challenge, they don't have profit, is actually to the sell their way out of it. The most common response is we need to sell more, which is a grave mistake, but it's, it's our gut. Remember, you know, empirical data is what we need. The reason selling your way out of things doesn't work, uh, and there's actually some pundits who say, you know sales cures everything, which is total nonsense. Sales is necessary, and there's no question about that. It alone is not sufficient. Sales translates directly to stress. And for small business, stress on the owner. Because if you think about it, every time I sell, say I use something Austin. Now I have a responsibility to deliver on it. Well, now I sell something to Landon. Now I have greater responsibility to deliver to two. The more I sell, the more I expand the organizational responsibility to deliver, which as a small business owner, carrying the business on my back, that's more responsibility on me. So the more I sell, the more stress I put on myself and the organization it becomes more burdensome. So what we need to do is simply sell more profitably. That's the element. Keep the sales in place, but extract profit. In some cases, actually even reducing sales volume to enhance sales profitability is actually the right move to make. Because then you're reducing burden and stress while expanding profitability. So many businesses fall in that trap, think they're going to sell their way out of it. And then a year or two from now, they're even in a more precarious position. Yes, they have more sales volume, but less related profitability on a, on a proportional basis and are under more of a struggle and more stress. Profit is usually the starting point. Not always, but usually when people do this analysis. Sometimes it's efficiency. Sometimes it is sales, but more of like a mix of products they're selling or who they're selling to as opposed to just raw volume.
1: Yeah, it's funny you say that because I literally five years ago bought a business outside of my financial planning practice just as a as a side business and investment opportunity it had multiple locations, and it was you know smaller. I think you
2: say it's a just for men salon. <laughs> yeah. Like, nice.
1: yeah, well, clearly it's working. I mean, at least it's being used by one of us. But hey, I'm, um, I'm right. Look at this thing. I'm ready to come over there. with This white dude. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm right. I'm right there with you. But it had about two million in revenue, and yeah. we closed multiple locations, brought it down to six hundred thousand in revenue for a, for a higher profit percentage. It not that funny? It made more sense.
2: And you know, there's this braggadociousness to the top line. Ooh, 2 million. Ooh, 5 million. Wow. There's this top line thinking. And it really is a vanity metric. Yeah. The profitability is all that matters. You're the one who's sitting back in the jacuzzi home, able to smoke that cigar or drink that cognac and just enjoy because you have no financial worry. That's the victory. Is removing the financial stress. So I'm not a big... Actually, I really don't care about top line. I don't top line thinking. I used to really don't care so much about it now. I'm all about what is going into the pocket of the shareholders and what is going into the reserves of the business so that I don't have to worry
1: about the unexpected, like, you know, COVID. Yeah, exactly. But much better, much better measure of the health of the business for sure. So, yeah. I wish we could actually go on for several more hours. We know you've got some other things that are that are coming up. We'd love to have you back on in the future. We honored. really appreciate the conversation. Um, but before we let you go, why don't you just give us a quick, uh, you know, website address, social media, how people can best get a hold of you, get onto the evaluation you mentioned, for example.
2: Yeah, yeah. Why don't we start there? Actually, let that, let that be the spot because you'll get everything from that. Go to fixthisnext.com. and on there uh, you can get information on the book and concepts, but there's a big red button that says, take the free evaluation. It'll maybe take five minutes. There's no downloads or anything. It's an instant report. And if you go to fixthisnext.com, it takes the evaluation five minutes and it'll pinpoint what's called the vital need. Within these five levels, there's five needs at each level. There's 25 different elements that we evaluate in your business. And you'll find, is it a profit issue? But is it how you're leveraging debt? Or is it you don't have a profit plan in place? Or is it you just don't have that reserve for payroll? Or is it a sales issue? Or is it something different? And i will find that for you in 5 minutes or less. And the nice thing is once you resolve whatever that challenge is, you can go back to the evaluation again. They'll find the next challenge for you. So it becomes a living document to help you navigate the rest of your business. FixThisNext.com
3: Love it. Before we wrap up, I promised my wife I would give her and my twins a shout out. So hi, Tia and uh, Hendricks and Harper. Thanks for listening. This is the first time they're actually going to be listening to the show in real time. So, Mike, uh, we can't stress this enough. Um, Thank you so much for your time. I know that everybody got a ton of value out of listening to you. Everybody was really excited to have you on, not just Austin and myself. So, again, thanks a lot, Mike. Really appreciate you.
2: Landon, this is a joy. If I could share with Tia, your wife, T, I I just want you to know,
1: Landon really is a fangirl of you. We were just horsing around. <laughs> he speaks the truth. He speaks and, the truth. And I'm not as mean as I sound on the radio. <laughs>
2: <laughs> now I appreciate you guys. Thanks for having me on. Thanks a lot, Mike.
1: Thanks, Mike.
0: You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, proudly hosted by Austin Peterson and Landon Mance.